Hello and welcome once again to Straight Talk, your intermittent podcast of political thought. My name is Scott Wyant, and this show is going to be a departure from what you've been used to hearing here, in that I'm going to be joined this time with Dr. Dean Flanagan, and we will be having a discussion with Professor Emeritus Gary Latanich from Arkansas State University in Jonesboro for a discussion on income inequality. I hope in the months that follow, Dean and I will be able to bring you more shows such as what you will hear in a moment. More discussions on a range of issues and not just interviews with politicians and candidates, though there will be more of those type of shows as we get closer to the 2020 elections. You can help by suggesting topics and guests you would like to hear discussed on Straight Talk. You can make suggestions in the comments section of the post of this show on the Straight Talk Arkansas website, where you'll also find links to email both myself and Dean Flanagan. Today's guest is Dr. Gary Latanich, an emeritus professor of economics from Arkansas State University in Jonesboro. During his 33 years of service there, he served as the assistant dean of the College of Business, the director of the MBA program, and the director of the Center for Economic Education program. He's a past president of the Missouri Valley Economic Association and served on Governor Bill Clinton's Council on Economic Advisors. He's done research for the Army Corps of Engineers, the Economic Development Administration, local chambers of commerce, and firms in the private sector. He holds a bachelor's degree of business from Ohio University and a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Nebraska. In 2012, he ran for Congress as a Democrat in Arkansas's 1st Congressional District. Dr. Latanich, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate this. No problem. And also with us is Dr. Dean Flanagan. You've heard him a lot on Straight Talk, and you've also recently became a member of the, the state Democratic establishment. Hi. How are you all doing? What, what's your new job? I'm labeled as the vice chair for counties for the Democratic Party of Arkansas. In that role, I am to basically support and generate a county party for all 75 counties of Arkansas. How are you you finding that so far? Well, being that I'm into it for about the seventh week now, (laughs) um, it still is a question of who's out there and how best to communicate between ourselves. We still are in such a rural state that email is not a viable option for about 10% of my leadership, let alone the rank-and-file membership. So to quickly distribute um, information or have responses takes literally a week plus, and that's if they're looking for the opportunity. So a lot of phone calls still occurs to make sure we contact each other and, you know, ask questions and answer questions. Well, it sounds like you got your work cut out for you. There's a lot of very cooperative people, though, and a lot of good spirits. So I'm hoping that the counties that have their act together and fully comply can help neighbors that have questions, doubts, or uncertainties. I think you're the right person for the job. It should be a fun challenge. Professor Latanich, we I asked you to come on the show to talk to us about income inequality. I understand that you've you've done some some work on income inequality and I've I've read several essays that you've written on the subject. What's your general impression of the way wealth is distributed in the United States? 
in Arkansas? Well, income and wealth inequality is probably the, the biggest risk that our society faces. Well, maybe global warming, but uh, in terms of economic risk, is the biggest challenge we face. We have so many people uh, in this country who literally can survive 30 days, 60 days, maybe 90 without their paychecks. And after that, they suffer. Um, uh, in, in the United States here, you miss your third house payment, they start foreclosure payments on you. Uh, half the country can only, only have savings big enough to last 90 days. So you think about a recession that goes on for six months, nine months a year, you have a large number of Americans who are facing foreclosure on their homes because they don't have the savings for it. Uh, and if they don't have savings for 90 days, they don't have anything for Social Security other than Social Security. So it's a huge problem. Uh, the top one-tenth of one percent has more money, more wealth, than the bottom 90% put together. This is not sustainable for a, to have a viable economy like this. It's not, not good for a healthy democracy either, is it? No, because, to be honest with you, um, money talks. I mean, you remember when Clinton was president, they had the Good Suit Club? They had the 12 richest Arkansans were advising Clinton and encouraging him to raise sales taxes for uh, funds for education. That was a good thing. But what other 12 citizens could have gotten together and God had Clinton's ear? Well, none. But the 12 richest Arkansans did. And, just, you know, in our society, money buys influence. And when you have that much concentration of money, and now with the um, Citizens United Act, you know, it kind of makes a joke out of the one man, one vote thing when small numbers of people can fund candidates virtually forever. Dr. Latonish, would you be so kind as to kind of give a working definition between income inequality and wealth inequality for our listeners? Income inequality is just how the current paychecks are divided up. What is my my pay rate versus (laughs) your pay rate? Um, uh, if, if, if there was perfect income equality, everybody would have about the same, would have the same paycheck. Every family would have about $133,000 a year in income. But we don't have equality. It's very unequal. So 20% of Americans, on average, live on only $19,000 a year. <laughs> That's income inequality, how the current paychecks are divided up. Wealth inequality is just the how the accumulated assets that we've got, homes, stocks and bonds, cars, jewelry, whatever, how that's divided up. And um, in the United States, like I said, the top one-tenth of one percent is more than the bottom 90 percent. Worldwide, the richest 26 families in the world have half the world's wealth. Is that historically the way it's always been, or... Uh, is it getting worse? The position we're at right now is the exact same position we were at at the height of the Depression, okay, with very unequal incomes, super rich, super poor people, a lot of people without work. From 1930 to probably 73, things got much better. 
the middle class grew. Uh, the amount of wealth and income held by the top 10% declined precipitously. But ever since the mid-70s, things have reversed, and we've now gone back to where we were at the end of the 20s and into the, into the Great Depression. We're as unequal as we were, as we're unequal as we've ever been, okay? So all the progress we made from the end of the Depression to the mid-70s has been reversed, unfortunately. If I were, if I were to say that a, a person working for minimum wage in 1968 has more buying power than someone today working a 15-hour job, $15 an hour job, would I be correct in that? Yeah, because if we had if we had indexed the minimum wage in '68, uh, it would be in the low 20s. So right, uh, a $15 an hour minimum wage now would not be as good as a as a, in, a minimum wage that was indexed from the early 60s to now. So so people people wow. who are advocating for a $15 minimum wage, that's not way out of the, out of the extreme as far as no. economics goes, right? No. Uh, in fact, it's not even see, at the extreme. No, it's not at the extreme. Uh, yeah, here's the thing. People will complain that the minimum wage is bad. The minimum wage was originally passed to end sweatshop conditions. Okay? Now we're using the minimum wage and not raising it as a way of protecting businesses. But, you know, the nation becomes wealthy every year because we produce more stuff. And if our productivity is 1% or 2 or 3%, that's how much wealthier we are by 1% or 2 or 3%. Every year, productivity goes up, but minimum wage workers get no part of the extra output they produce. Somebody else is getting their share, but they're not. You could increase minimum wage every year equal to productivity, and companies would never have to raise prices because of it. Could you say that again? Could you repeat uh, that illustration? For what makes the nation wealthy, okay? Every year the nation's productivity rises 1%, 1.5%, okay? If everybody, everybody asked for a, an income increase of whatever productivity was, 1% or 2 or 3%, whatever it is, companies would never be forced to raise prices. They wouldn't have to raise prices. Their unit labor costs wouldn't rise, and everybody could live better, okay? Unfortunately, the way we divide up income in this country, the CEOs get tons of extra money every year, and we give the uh, minimum wage workers nothing year in and year out. Yeah, we went from, what, 2009 till 2007? No, what, 2016 was the last increase in the federal minimum wage, wasn't it? Well, the, the last minimum wage was 2009. Right. Well, that's when it went into effect. So they've had nothing. Oh, there hasn't for, been a federal increase at all since 2009. Yeah, and the last one that uh, the last time the, a, a law kicked in and raised it was 2009, and it went to $7.25. Since then, um, they've had nothing, uh, and the value of their minimum wage has dropped, like, I think, 9.5% or something uh, in those right, years. okay. Yeah. So I, I must have been thinking about Arkansas increasing the minimum wage in 2016. They did. 
They did. They, okay. they did. Sorry, sorry about that confusion. Has any state or the federal government ever indexed the minimum wage to no. some type of no. annual adjustment? No. No, no one's done that yet. Although there is a bill in Congress, in the House, that's proposing raising the minimum wage to 15 and then indexing it to the average median wage growth. Uh, that's the proposal. That raise to 15 and then index it after that to uh, median wage growth. And also, they're tending to get rid of the tipped minimum wage for people who work in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, boy, I wish they'd do that. That that is just crazy to me. The tipped minimum wage leads to wage theft because the law they they did that tip thing to buy, get the National Restaurant Association to buy into the last round of wage hikes in 2009 or what have you. Uh, but the law said that if the restaurant workers' tips don't sum to whatever the uh, tipped minimum wage is they're supposed to, the restaurant's supposed to kick in the amount to raise it to that but they rarely do and so wage theft is particularly bad among restaurant workers who tips yeah. don't equal the minimum wage and the company doesn't kick in uh, so it's a bad thing it, 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 it needs to go what segment of the income distribution has been most Lost the most momentum, I guess is my question, since the thirty, since the seventies. High school people with high school degrees, any, anybody with a high school degree since nineteen seventy three, is today working for less than they were in nineteen seventy three. College degrees, college degrees have been up. They they were stagnant for eight or nine years. They're rising again. Uh, college people have done better. Uh, associate degree people have not done well, although they haven't declined much. And high school women have done much better than high school men. But that's only because they suffered so much discrimination in the 70s that now that we're not doing that to them, they're doing better. Uh, but still, they're barely making what they were making in the 70s, and, and males with high school degrees are making far less. Now, has the increase in in uh, the cost of a higher education has that stayed commensurate with the the wage increase someone with a college education oh, no. is expected to get? No, uh, college education, uh, high, higher education costs are rising almost almost like they are in in healthcare. Uh, they vastly exceed um, the increase in in wages. I think when I first moved here to Arkansas, uh, as I remember someone telling me that the state provided about 70% of the funding for ASU, and the rest came from other sources. Now, uh, funding is is not quite 50%. So as the states have backed off, a larger chunk of the costs have fallen. Uh, and, you know, colleges are like, like health care. They, they know that everybody needs an education like you need health care. And right. so they really don't face a budget constraint. You know, and they feel free to raise tuition all the time to do whatever they need fearing, with no fear that they're going to suffer any consequences. Because the colleges don't compete against each other. And so college costs rise tremendously. Uh, federal government tried to help out with guaranteed student loans 
And it, it has helped students get into college. Prior to that, they were kind of blocked. They didn't have the money. Now the money is always available, but it's so expensive that these kids are coming out of, the, out of school with, on average, like $37,000 worth of debt, which isn't, which isn't that bad, except they treat it like a mortgage. They charge interest. Right. And so $37,000 in debt, by the time you pay it off, will be seventy five or 80000 well, that's the price of a very expensive BMW. Yeah. So a lot of kids are really suffering, you know, um, because of it. Uh, and it's really not necessary. But, yeah, higher education costs are rising, like health care costs, way, way, way above, above any kind of income growth. And then, and then you add on to that the change to the bankruptcy laws, and now student debt is no longer dischargeable under bankruptcy laws, correct? That's right. That's right. And if you notice, uh, corporations under new bankruptcy law can discharge anything. They can indicate, they can discharge their pension obligations or what have you. But for individuals, if your income exceeds the state median, you cannot discharge your debt. Uh, you have to file a different kind of bankruptcy where you have to work with the courts to pay it off. But for the companies, they can discharge almost everything and anything. It was really, the laws were written in a way that benefited companies first and, and, and didn't help the consumer at all. Obviously, the income distribution was, is responsible for income inequality. But what were actually the causes from the internal sources of distribution, i.e., why are the companies today not distributing wealth or their profits to their employees the way they were doing it during the 1930s to 1970s? Well, one of the reasons is if you look at um, unions. Okay, one time a third of the labor force was unionized, okay? And so when unions were negotiating new wage hikes, they would negotiate COLA clauses, cost of living escalators. So you would negotiate a, a wage hike. And then there'd be a COLA clause that said, yeah, we're going to get 4% more. And, and every year of the contract, you will raise our wages extra amounts equal to the cost of living, the inflation rate. Well, unions have gone from 33% down to all overall like 8%. And half of that is public unions. So that pressure is gone. Uh, we did a much better job in the past of raising the minimum wage. Now it's very hard to get it passed. Um, another thing that's that's hurt is this whole idea of globalization. Um, consumers are interested in buying the cheapest product possible. And so when you have Kmart competing with Target, competing with Walmart, they've all got to have cheap products. And because of containerized shipping, you can either buy an American product or imported from China for half the price. So even if Walmart wants to buy American, they know that if they buy just American-made products, their price will be much greater than Target's and Kmart. They will lose customers. And so even though they want to maybe buy American, they're forced to look for suppliers overseas who can bring it over here and sell it for a fraction of the price. So between no impact, no unionization, no efforts to raise minimum wage, and uh, globalization, foreign trade, uh, there's companies have no incentive to raise wages. There's no pressure on them. 
Yeah, when, one more the, thing here. when we refer to the globalizational influence here, is I, I'm trying to figure out how the is this the globalization of human necessity products or the globalization of our Western civilization consumerism? I mean, from a standpoint, it sounds like to me from and my research or review that the United States suffers far greater income distribution, maldistribution and inequality than most of the rest of the Western world. We view ourselves, unfortunately, very capitalistic, and I would say very consumer, have a high degree of consumerism. Is yes, there a way to kind of compare those? I would I, I, I define globalization as simply companies now being multinational, okay? And mm -hmm. their markets are worldwide. So when General Motors discovers that the best-selling car in China is the Buick, their attitude is, hey, let's produce the Buick in China, okay? Um, because of containerized... It, it, remember the old pictures of World War II cargo ships with the little booms on top? It would oh, take yeah. days to unload those things. With today's yes. containerized cargo ships, you can unload one that's 20 times as big in, in a couple of hours. So the cost the cost of shipping stuff overseas is is nothing. It, it, here's, here's a good example. When I was in grad school, uh, the, the Chinese, the Japanese, Japanese had used a steel process called the oxygen conversion, a, a process we made but didn't use because our factories were still not fully depreciated. Japanese were all bombed out. They took this new process. For years, they produced products steel cheaper than we did, but because of the high cost of shipping it from Japan to here, it wasn't viable. But sometime around the time of the Vietnam War, containerized shipping vegetables came into existence. And now mm -hmm. the cost of shipping steel was super cheap. And the last year I was in grad school, a company in Toledo, Ohio, which is 100 miles from Cleveland, the home of Republic Steel, found it cheaper to import steel from Japan than to buy it from Cleveland. Shipping costs are very low. Companies realize, hey, I can build a factory any place, take my technology, build the factory there, pay the workers $4 an hour, put it on a ship, and ship it back to America. And even with the shipping costs, I can produce less than paying what I get if I paid American workers the average of $25 an hour. So manufacturing is spread out all over the world to places where it's very cheap, and then it's super cheap to ship it back. And Americans, looking for the best price, which is rational, will buy a product that's Japanese-made or Chinese-made or Indian-made first before American because given their income, it stretches their budget farther and they live better. Very complicated process, and no one has quite figured out what to do about this. Because it's contributing to a lot of, a lot of some good-paying jobs flowing overseas, and how do you compete with that? Wasn't there wasn't there a time in America's past where uh, tariffs and other, you know, like instruments of taxation would uh, market of, control? Yeah, would 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 kind of lessen the effect of American corporations going overseas. 
it seems to me like the, the federal government had to have allowed a manufacturer like Ford to put, you know, start making automobiles in Australia and importing them into the United States as if they were, you know, coming out of Detroit. Yeah, there was no real way to prevent that. Years ago, when companies were just domestic, um, they had no incentive to build a factory overseas. You couldn't transport our technology over there well. Right. Their people weren't that educated, so it really didn't work. Um, but as populations have become more educated and technology become more routinized, it's very easy to ship the machinery to China or to Taiwan oh, or okay. India, wherever. They've got high school degrees. You know, you could put tariffs back on, uh, and that would keep some of the products out. But, but trade has a double-edged sword to it. We do lose jobs because of this globalization. But think about all the inexpensive products that flood this country and how those inexpensive products benefit people, 20% of us, who on average make only $19,000. Yeah, that's true. These people's attitude is, I don't care if some high manufacturing wage in Ohio is lost. You brought these products here, and I don't make a whole lot, but when I go to Walmart and Kmart, my dollar goes a lot farther my family was better because of these imports. I'm not unhappy with them. So it's it's a double-edged sword. We get a lot of cheap products here. We live very well because of this, but we do lose some high, high-end jobs. Okay. comes down basically to the cost of shipping. Is, is, yeah, that's the part of it. And, and, and manufacturing wages. Right. You know, at $4 an hour, when ours make $25 an hour, that, that's one shipping cost went away is a problem. It's hard to compete. Now, that's why Trump is saying, oh, let's redo NAFTA so that we bring the auto factories back to America. Well, GM shipped their cruise car production to Mexico, okay, to keep mm-hmm. it viable. Uh, Chrysler decided not to move their uh, Chrysler 200 production to Mexico, uh, but they couldn't compete, and so they just, they just shut it down. They don't make the, the Chrysler 200 anymore. So what was better off? Americans lost the Chrysler 200, but they still had the cruise to buy. Okay. Um, there are no jobs making the 200, and there's no jobs making the cruise. One, one division went to Mexico. The other one just shut down. But either way, we lost employment, but, it, but by moving to Mexico, we still have the car, and they were able to compete with the Japanese and, and other people. So... Yeah, they want the companies to come back, but the reality is, if you're a company and you can pay four or five dollars an hour there versus twenty-five here, where would you look at? Well, that raises the question: Then, what are our solutions for um, balancing income and lowering the income inequality in us, a the United States, a climax uh, market? Well. What we should do is there was there was a law proposed that never passed was called the Employee Free Choice Act. It was it would allow workers to unionize just as long as they sent in their postcard saying that they wanted to be a union. As soon as they sent them in and they were tabulated yes, you you didn't have to have the NLRB come back in and hold an election 
three or four months later. Okay, that's the way it works now. You say you want a union, a couple months later the NLRB comes in to hold an official election to see if the majority wants it. And in the meantime, what does the company do? They get rid of all the union organizers. Yeah. They, they pressure them to vote no. Okay, under the Employee Free Choice Act, once the cards were sent in that they want a union, it was a majority, it's in. And the law said that the company had to negotiate with the union. Current law says they don't have to negotiate. Okay? We need to make it easier to organize. We need to index the minimum wage to something so that it goes up. Okay? When Clinton was president, they changed the law and allowed companies to use profits to buy back stock. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, that was illegal, and it was called stock manipulation. Yeah, we now but, allow it. So a lot of companies use their profits to buy back stock, jack up the price for current owners, uh, and that's where their profits go. That's where the majority of the last tax cuts to corporations went to, wasn't it? To exactly. stock buyback? Exactly. Exactly. And and when companies pay their executives a lot of times it's in stock options, which is not treated as a cost to the company, and so their attitude is, well, it's just, it, it doesn't show up as a cost, so we'll reward our executives with stock, okay? And then if we buy back the stock, then their, then their options become very valuable. And, and companies, executives think, well, gee, the goal should be short-run profit maximization, jack up the price of the stock because a lot of my compensation is in stock. So companies are very short-sighted. So you need to change how we compensate executives. We need to index minimum wage. We need to allow people to organize. And... You know, we had tax rates at one time were 70%, sometimes were 90%. And from 1945 until 1980, the maximum tax rate in the United States was 70%. Since then, we've been lowering it. But guess what? The growth rates in the economy from 45 until 80 were one percentage point higher on average than they were from 1980 to the present. We did better with a higher marginal tax rate then that we're doing now. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, it just it's it's basic, you know, it's elementary. If you if you're a company and your after profit taxes are high, well, that just means instead of paying, you know, taking all that in profit and paying tax on it, well, you're going to invest more into the company. You're either going to hire more salespeople or you're going to buy more machines and machine tools to, you know, that way you're not, all that profit's not being taxed. It, it just seems to me like that's elementary. I don't understand why people don't understand that. I, I could be wrong, See, See, they claim that our corporate tax was high, and, and, and it was in terms of what was on the books, but nobody ever paid that. All the tax deductions and exemptions and subsidies we had corporations, meant that the actual tax paid by our companies was far less than what it, it showed on the books. It was somewhere in the middle of what the Europeans paid. And this new tax law, they said, oh, we're going to lower corporate taxes from 35 to 21, and we're going to bring the companies back home. But what they didn't tell you was, in the new tax law, there's something called the territorial provision. And that provision says that if you're a company and you have an overseas subsidiary or division, the tax on that company's profits isn't 21%, it's going to be 10 Well, now, 
sure, we lower the taxes from 35 to 21, but we also lower the tax on the foreign divisions all the way down to 10%. So if you're a company and you have a foreign subsidiary or a foreign division, would you going to bring it home and pay 21% tax on profits, or would you leave it there, pay 10? You can leave it there. So the argument that we're going to lower corporate taxes are going to bring jobs home was just pure hype. It was untruth. Absolutely self-defeating, it sounds like. Yes, but it was never designed to do that. It was designed to simply reward. And as one congressman said, you know, my backers want some payoff from their campaign contributions. And if I don't produce some payoff for them, I will not get contributions in the future. So what is the payoff from a majority of these legislators? Let's pass a, a big tax cut that goes mainly to upper-income people and to corporations. That's the reward for supporting me. Okay? They said everybody would get a $4,000 pay rate, but that was just silly talk. Nobody believes that. It never happened, and it didn't. Uh, it went to dividends, buybacks, and corporate executive salaries with a few one-year bonuses that yeah. have long since evaporated. Kind of in that same vein of... In a way, people's weekly income, if they get paid by by weekly, uh, it did go up. But the reason it went up is, I remember when this happened back in the 80s, they lowered the withholding amount that comes out of your, your federal taxes. So each person's weekly check, it appeared to be larger, but a lot of people are finding now, when they're filing their, their income tax returns, that instead of getting the $2,000 refund that they've been getting for the last few years, now they might be owing $1,500. Yeah, they changed the brackets. They got rid of some of the deductions. They got rid of the state and local taxes exemption. But the lowest, the bottom 20% of income earners here, the tax cut netted them about $60 a month. Uh, the people at the top end of it uh, netted over $100,000. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it, the way the taxes were cut for them. So it was a big boost to to uh, the, the wealthy or the upper end of people. But people at the bottom, on average, got about, I think, $60 was the, uh, the net savings because of the tax bill. It reminds me of something I heard a long time ago. You know, figures don't lie, but liars can figure. <laughs> yes, yes. I want to ask you about something that was in one of the essays I, I read from you. I don't recall when it happened, but you you told a story of a of a surprise birthday present that your sister gave you. You want to tell us oh, about yeah. that? Oh yeah, it was uh, a book written in 1940, uh, and it's talking about the problem that uh, we were having, and they mentioned uh, monopoly power. They talked about wages being stagnant. They talked about people having. Um, uh, substandard housing, uh, their incomes were very unequal, there uh, was a huge, huge accumulation of wealth by uh, industrialists, uh, and the people were just overall not doing well. Of course, this was 1940, this was, you know, before World War II and after 10 years of, of depression. So, and they, and they, and then when I'm thinking about those problems, I'm thinking, well, those are the exact same problems we have today. Uh, uh, poor wages. You know, we have homeless people who are worried about monopoly power. 
Um, the other thing that surprised me about the book was they wanted to talk about how it's the government's job to fix problems. And the government identifies what needs to be done, what do we need to do to fix problems, and then look at our taxes and say, what do we need to raise in taxes to fix our problems? Today, we simply cut taxes all the time because it's politically popular, and then figure out, well, now, given what's left of our revenue, what can we do? Which is totally backwards. You know, households do that. Households look at their income and say, this is all the money we got. What can we do? The government is supposed to say, what are the problems? Let's fix them. Oh, and now how much money do we need? Okay, let's turn around and raise the revenue to fix the problems. But look at Arkansas. How many times have we cut taxes in Arkansas? We do all the time. And then what do we not do? We, we don't fund education well. We don't fund roads. We, let, we don't fund colleges, so it becomes very expensive. Uh, all the things we need to do, we never do. Uh, prior to Obamacare, Medicaid in Arkansas cut out when you made 17% of the poverty level. When you made, I think, $3,900, as a single person, you are no longer eligible for Medicaid. We could have fixed that, but we never did because why? Every time we got any income growth in the nation, in the state, we cut taxes. And so the money to fix problems in Arkansas, we never did. In the 1940s, their attitude was find the problem, raise the revenue, and fix them. Today, we're fixated on cutting taxes because it's politically popular. Well, along those lines, what would be modern-day recommendations to fix the problem. I mean, that what you're saying is a, I won't say simple, but what will the government need to do to, quote, fill the bucket to distribute the societal needs? Well, one thing, let's take Arkansas's example here. Every mm-hmm. year, the state has, has revenue growth. It's probably doing better. All right? Every year, the state should not be looking for tax cuts. They should be saying, look, we've got an extra $100 million, $150 million, $250 million in revenue from economic growth. What can we do with it? Go to the college and say, look, we've got $250 million okay, of extra funds okay, that we can distribute here. You're asking for more money. We'll give you more than what you're asking for if you promise to lower tuition, to make it cheaper for children to go to college, not more expensive. We could use the revenue growth and fund Medicaid. Uh, we're, we're funding it now because of Obamacare. Well, we could have been doing this all along. We mm-hmm. could index our minimum wage here. Uh, we've done a nice job with it compared to other states. We could index it so that it rises with state productivity so people wouldn't fall behind. For people who make very little money, we could use the extra revenue to expand the income tax credit so people who made very little and don't pay taxes might even get a bigger refund to it. So there's ways, to, you know, the state, the state's not a company. It doesn't sell products to have revenue. But it has revenue from taxes that it grows, that grows with the economy. It could use this to fix a number of things. This is called the fiscal dividend. But Republicans are fixated on small governments. They promise people tax cuts. People foolishly buy into it. And so you get tax cuts that are meaningless in terms of your income. But what do you have? Bad health care, you have expensive colleges, you have a tax system that doesn't benefit low-income people. To raise income taxes 
we have to get three-fourths of the state legislature vote. That never happens. So as communities need more revenue, what do we do? We raise sales taxes. Well, sales taxes hurt poor people more than rich people because mm-hmm. rich people don't spend all of their money on food and clothing and housing, but poor people do. So as a state level, we should use our tax revenue to fund things that are needed and have a, an indexed minimum wage. 130,000 Arkansans benefited by it. Most of them were women. By any chance, when states have raised or not lowered corporate taxes or financial incentives for larger corporations, is there any scientific review that says, or analysis that says, they do lose larger employers or lose innovative growth companies because of standing their ground? Mostly when companies lose, as as you notice, who's losing is the high-wage state. So if you look at steel production, you know, steel production used to be big in Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Youngstown. You know where most of the steel is made these days? In the South. Because it's cheap Mm -hmm. and it's non-unionized. Okay? In Jonesboro here, we had some incentives for a company called Hayworth. They made office furniture to move in. They were here for a few years, but then they left. Too many times, what we got is companies playing one state off against another. Give me a billion dollars in tax benefits, and I'll come to your country or your your, your state. But I promise you 5,000 jobs. Well, they don't get the 5,000. They get 2,000. They don't stay forever. They stay three years. They relocate somewhere else. It's referred to in the literature as the Second Civil War because states are fighting with each other to get companies. Companies are moving around. The net increase in employment isn't much, but in the process, the states give away huge tax revenues, which means they have to cut social services. Wisconsin is offering Foxconn a billion dollar subsidy to move there. Well, Foxconn says they're going to provide 10,000 jobs. Well, now they're saying maybe it's five, and they won't be in manufacturing. It'll be in some high-tech field that maybe Wisconsin doesn't have that many people. So maybe the jobs won't be even five. It'll be two. After a billion-dollar subsidy, it'll take to 2050 for the state to recoup that revenue. Well, is that really worth it? And then then they're going to claim that there's not enough engineers, so they're going to have to use the H-1B visa to bring engineers from Asia over here. See, in Arkansas here, we claim that we're not competitive because of our income tax rate. Companies don't Hmm. care about our personal tax rate. They care about their tax rate. But if we tax our people, they don't care. They care about labor costs and other things. So if we're a cheap state in terms of wages, they're going to come here. If we tax our people highly, they don't care. So the argument that high income taxes, personal income taxes are keeping companies out makes no sense. High corporate taxes, maybe, but not high personal. But we keep cutting personal taxes because it's a political ploy to get elected. And then when the state doesn't have the revenue to do certain things, well, we don't have the revenue. Notice what they did with the, with the, uh, with Trump tax cuts. They made the corporate tax cuts permanent, but the personal tax cuts were designed to expire in four years. So, if the Democrats get elected in four years, they're faced with these tax cuts that create a huge deficit, and they can either Mm -hmm. live with them, or they can propose raising tax revenue to cut them off. 
if you're going to run an election in four years and propose raising taxes, is that going to get you elected? Well, not only that, even if they do nothing, the taxes are going to go up on individuals anyway, so they're going to get the blame yeah. for it. Uh, yep, they're going to get blamed for it. They're going to get blamed for not making the tax cuts permanent, Yeah, mm-hmm. which is what makes Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax so interesting. Her attitude is, hey, the wealthy people have 90% of the wealth in this country, and they're not doing anything with it. I mean, you can only spend so much money. Why not have a 2 or 3% tax on it and raise $3 trillion, $10 trillion, you know, enough to fund daycare centers, enough to fund Medicaid for everybody? When you tax wealth, people got to pay a tax on their stocks and bonds. This is money they're not spending. It's just accumulated financial assets. So if they give up 3 or 4% of that in tax revenue... Is it going to hurt their lifestyle? No. Will it generate revenue for the federal government? Yeah. Can they fund Social Security, Medicare, highways, food stamps? Yeah. Would term limit assist in encouraging our legislators to think individually versus corporately? Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, you would think that if people going in knowing they've only got one term in there, or maybe only two, it can't, it's not a permanent life job, it's just a one and done, that people would go in and say, okay, fine, I'm going to do the right thing, because I can't stay forever, but, I, but this is my one shot to do good, uh, mm-hmm. or the other alternative is, you know, make all elections publicly funded, you know, everyone gets X amount of money to run a campaign, no private money is allowed, and you have to, uh, you have to demonstrate your proposals to get elected, and um, you, you don't have to pander to somebody for money. It, either way, but money corrupts. I was when I ran for Congress, I was stunned. Of course, I was probably naive. Eighty percent of my time was spent on the phone asking for money. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though I had Marion Barry's campaign contribution list, which showed all his one thousand, two thousand dollar donors, when I would make the phone calls and ask. They would tell them, my name is Gary Latonich, I'm an economist, Arkansas State, I'm a Democrat, I'm running. And they would say, Gary who? I would repeat my name. And what company do you work for? I uh, know I'm running for Congress as a Democrat on Marion Barry's old seat. Okay, and finally that was settled. Then I'd give my little talk and ask if they wanted to give me $1,000. And their attitude was, are you crazy? I don't know you. <laughs> give you a thousand? No, I'm sorry. You know, and so... Out of those lists I got, the only people who gave me money were people who tended to be former students who remembered me. Okay? So the ability to raise funds was very difficult. And therefore, no matter what proposals I might have had for Congress, they didn't go anywhere because I couldn't get enough money and make my name known enough. So you got to get money out of politics, or you got to make term limits. The problem with term limits, though, is if everyone's only allowed one term, then all you've got basically is a bunch of um, neophytes who really don't understand yeah. how government works. Do you really get the best legislation? I don't know. It's an open question. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't like term limits because you tend to lose the institutional knowledge of how government yeah. runs when right. you have term limits. Right. And then exactly. everybody complains about bureaucracy, but when you have term limits, then that institutional memory is transferred to the bureaucrats. So they're the right. only ones that know how to how to run anything, and you're, you're left with a bunch of people who are supposed to be making the laws that don't know how to do it. Exactly. 
Exactly. I think that probably funded elections are the best way to go. Get the money out, and then people are going to compete for an office. they got to come up with ideas. It just can't be advertising and yard signs and all this stuff. It's got to be actual meet the people and tell them what you're going to do. Personally, I think if, if you've ever had a public office, then you should be barred for life from ever lobbying. Oh, yeah. You should not be able to work in industries that you were uh, dealing with. Yeah. And see, even now, Congress can sit on committees to do health care or whatever, and they can still buy stock in the companies that their committee is regulating. The potential for abuse is horrible there. You shouldn't be allowed to be a congressman or senator and be a lobbyist ever. When you leave office, you can go to the private sector, but never a lobbyist. How many of our former congressmen here are lobbyists? That's just basic corruption right there. It's just... It is. I think it, it borders on, you know, you pass laws favorable to them, and then when you leave office, they'll hire you back again. Branch Lincoln is a lobbyist, I understand. Um, and, and that's just the way it is. It's a revolving door. There are, I think, a thousand lobbyists for every legislator in Washington, and they're pushing bills favorable to them. They come up with these fantastic studies, um, examples of what legislation look, look like. And there's a, an organization called ALEC, the American, American Legislative Council or something, that pushes a conservative legislation, and a lot of state legislatures are buying into it passing laws that are basically constructed by industry that benefit them. Yeah, they're, they're writing of, the laws. Yeah, basically writing the laws. That should not be allowed. You know, I know a couple of companies have been exposed as being part of Alcon, they've dropped out, but they're very powerful. Doesn't that carry us back to the concept of corporations should not be, or they, they're recognized as an individual with immortality? Such that yeah. if you make them mortal, i.e., they're effective only for a set period of time, or better yet, they they do not have the privileges of a individual citizen, and therefore, right. like campaign finance, if they're not individual, right. like a foreign sovereign, you can deny them any expenditure yeah. into a campaign. Period. Yeah, their legal rights should not rival that of citizens. They should have some rights as a company. But they're treated as, a, as just like a human being. They have all the rights we have, but they're just an institution. And that, that should not be allowed. I'll, I'll never believe a corporation is a, is a person until Texas ex- executes one of them. <laughs> I heard that, too. That was so funny. That was so funny, yes. Let me ask you about something that's been in the news for a while now, and it's, it's actually getting some traction. But I understand it's not, it's not really a new idea. And that's a, a basic universal income. No, no, it's not. Can you can you tell us about idea. the history of that? Uh, Richard Nixon toyed with the idea. They were going to give everybody, I think it was $1,600 a year as a basic right, which in today's today's dollars would have been like $10,000. He was really in favor of this. Uh, this was an outgrowth of um, Friedman's negative income tax. But then there was a man named Martin Anderson, an advisor who told him that this was bad. This was going to make people not want to work, because he favored small government. And so he convinced Nixon it was bad. So Nixon then turned around and canned the idea and then went on to talk about how you know, unemployment apparently was a choice people made. and People should be working. And briefly turned the nation against the idea of it. Yeah, it's, it's something that's being talked about. The earned income tax credit we have today is basically kind of like a universal benefit, although you have to work to get it. 
that it was an outgrowth of uh, Milton Friedman's negative income tax. It's talked about as a possibility because as a lot of companies want to hire only part-time workers or only temporary workers, and more and more people are going to part-time, not because they want to, but they have to. The question is, how do they survive? Does their lifestyle depend on only their income? And if they're all going to be part-timers, then they're not going to survive. So maybe in a society that's super wealthy, where the money is flowing to corporations, maybe we use the corporate tax to recoup some of the money and then give it to everybody as a universal benefit. Kind of like Alaska does with their uh, oil revenue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Has it ever been tried anywhere, um, basic universal income? It's been tried in a number of countries. Uh, and we had a number of examples in the United States where it was tried when Nixon was president. Uh, they tried it in Colorado. They tried it in various places. And in every place they tried it as, an, as a project, they found that, that people didn't stop working that it was, it took it as income, it was never enough to survive on, but it, it covered the basic necessities and made their, their lifestyle better, because even if they found it, a job that wasn't that great, with their universal benefits, they did okay. So that was always the big fear, you give people money, they won't work. We, we never found that anywhere in the United States, and in places like India and Uganda where they're trying it, they don't find it in Kenya, they don't find that people are, are dropping out of labor force. But the only ones that ever do are teenagers who didn't want to go to school. But for anybody beyond that, no one stops working. So it it, ha it has seemed to be very successful, you know. But everyone's feared is that no one will want to work and that you're going to have to tax the rich, and that will not be popular. Well, I've always yeah. heard that it, if you if you tax the rich, they'll just stop doing what they're doing, and and everything will grind to a halt. Yeah. But what are the rich really doing? Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, you could tax them 5% of their wealth, they're going to stop making billions? No. These guys have more money than they need. They do what they do because it's their lifestyle, it's their challenge, it's their their thing. You can talk to tax Mark Zuckerberg, he's still going to be doing his Facebook thing. Bezos is still going to try to send people to Mars, you know. Um, they're not going to stop. No, and a lot of rich people just take their money and they reinvest in the stock market. They're not actually investing themselves. They're just, you know, they have a job that pays very well. Uh, they accumulate more money than they can spend, so they buy stock with it. If you tax them more, like my, I have a doctor friend who says, if you had Medicare for everybody and I had to take lower or lower remuneration for my services, I would just quit being a doctor. So I asked them, I said, Mark, what would you do? Well, everybody had no answer. Yeah. Because, yeah, you're making a lot of money as a doctor. Your next best alternative is probably nothing. If we taxed you, you'd have less income, but you wouldn't quit because quitting means you have nothing. Well, to speak friendly to, I guess you say, the high-end defined professional, since mm -hmm. there is no pension plan in mm -hmm. that world, and the way... Right consumerism has pushed our mindset, most professionals are failing themselves unless they have the good fortune of staying very actively employed for a full 30 plus years and utilizing their hopefully knowledge to do better than the average at saving. Many don't. Yeah. They're, they're going to be a lot of rude awakening for my cohort of medical practitioners, for example, who literally 
will never quit working, unlike their parents who worked in factories or um, worked you know, professional market jobs and could have a pension at Sears Roebuck and retire at 65. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I wonder if these professionals just, they don't retire, not because they can't, but because they spend so much of their time doing just that. They have no, they have no hobbies, they have no interests. This is their whole life to be consumed by being a neurosurgeon or something. And when it comes time to retire, it's like, to do what? I don't have any hobbies, no interests, no activities. And so I wonder if someone just keep working because this is all they know. Well, that's part of it. I really do believe that is I've seen a good number older than I that do just that. But on their side coin, they also realize that if they stop their lifestyle, consumerism will stop well, also. That's true. Unless they've saved a huge amount. Yeah. If they're just basically spending everything they're earning, you're right. Uh, well, in today's fashion, they, they don't have the opportunity to even save for the first 5 to 15 years, just depending on what type of physician they are and the debt load that they carry leaving their schooling. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the average graduate from medical school today exceeds a quarter million dollars in debt just for education. A quarter million, not 37000 but 250000 yeah. plus. And the right. entry-level average position in America is roughly $200,000. That's the average. If you compare the neurosurgeons who are, and well, actually orthopedic surgeons and thoracic surgeons make just as much as a neurosurgeon, but you compare those salaries um, down to the family physician, general practicing type of salary, but general family practice would be the modern term. That is roughly about $200,000 for the next five years of your life. And these people are itching to start families, buy homes, be, mm -hmm. quote, their viewpoint of middle-income America type of existence. Or that's the middle class, I guess is the right word. Because that's what they grew up to be for the most part. They think of themselves right. as middle class regardless of their income. But they want their car. They want the house. They want a pair sure. of golf, you know, finally go play golf some. And they want some vacations that they've denied themselves for the last five years. Yeah, exactly where the state could help out. I mean, we have revenue growth all the time at the state level. Why is the state going to the medical, the medical college, GMS, and saying, hey, look, we're going we're gonna to dump a bunch of, of our extra revenue here on you so that you can afford to have graduates come out of medical school without $200,000 in debt. You know, you could do that. Yeah. Uh, but they don't do that. They just give away the tax revenue with tax cuts endlessly. Everybody's cutting taxes. But if you used the dividend, you could do that. And then, you know, if it wasn't that expensive, you could also then expand the size of medical college. Arkansas has a shortage of physicians. Why not pour some of your tax revenue, instead of cut tax cuts, pour to the UMS and say, look, we need you to expand. We need you to increase the size of your graduating class by 20% over the next four years. We need more doctors. You know, we'll give you the funds, but it doesn't have the money because they're giving tax cuts. Yeah. And the same, the same argument and the same proportional phenomena occurs in the STEM educational systems, accounting system, law system, nursing. It's just a relative proportions that they come out of their schooling in debt, deferred gratification of, of life, or they've gone back to school and make huge, I hate to say it, deficits into their savings to try yeah. to jump up a step of earning potential mm -hmm. and 
you can't find a job because you're now educate yourself out of your quote local market sometimes. Yeah, it's complicated, and, and I don't and I don't admit it, but no, in education, there's just no cost constraints. I mean, we know we have a demand for our product all the time. If times are good, people need education. If, if there's a recession, they need to get trained. There's always this demand, and therefore, universities never feel constrained about raising their prices. The companies that are competitive could never raise prices the way uh, they do in healthcare and education. There's all this competition between them, but in the healthcare industry and education, we have this, you know, the richer we get, the more people we have, the more we want education and healthcare, and so it's like, okay, no budget constraints, just raise the price, they'll pay, because they have to be see doctors, they have to go to school. One place I've seen educational systems not seeming to have a problem spending money, and that's in, in their athletic departments. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're always building new stadiums, and, and sure. uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the highest paid state employee in Arkansas is the athletics director at University of Arkansas. Now, if, he's if not, not, not his all his money coach. is not state money, not all state money, but you're right. His total compensation is big, yeah. And you see that, you know, donors are willing to donate money for athletic stadiums and athletic scholarships. You know, not nearly as much as it is for uh, for academics. Yeah. Here at Arkansas State, someone gave twenty million dollars to improve the football stadium and for the football program. You know, no academic college in Arkansas State got twenty million dollars. No. But let, let me yeah. ask you something else that I I noticed, and I may I may be wrong. You can tell me if I'm right or not. It seems like as long as I can remember, we've had conservatives saying. We have to cut taxes. Everything's going to be rosy if we cut taxes. And they cut taxes and things aren't rosy. So they come back and say, well, they're not rosy because we didn't cut enough taxes. So we need to cut yes. more taxes. And then, then yes. things are all going to be perfect. So they cut more taxes. Am I, am I wrong in, in my thinking that they're not going to be convinced that things aren't going to be rosy until we're down to zero in taxes? See, they're saying that. I don't think they really believe that. They say that to the public to get them to, for the public to buy in and say, sure, we'll cut your taxes, but it's good. the deficits will be taken care of, the economy will grow, we'll do much better. I don't think they believe that at all. They just do that, I think, to get elected. But if they do believe it, if they do, here's their flaw. And, it, and, and I heard this in Arkansas. We're going to cut the state tax income taxes in Arkansas, and the economy is going to grow. Okay, so you cut taxes in Arkansas, and everybody gets some extra money. We all go out and buy, right? But what do we buy? We buy endless stuff, but how much of the stuff that we buy is actually made in Arkansas? Yeah. Very little, right? It's made somewhere else. And so, yeah, sales boomed, and some state has... Their products are selling, but it's not here, okay? That kind of logic, cut taxes that people will spend when the economy grows, that works at the national level. When the economy's in recession and a lot of people are employed, you cut other people's taxes, they spend, and people go back to work, okay? But it doesn't work at the state level. Every time the state does it, all they do is they cut taxes, they have less revenue, and the economy doesn't grow because the economy grows by people outside our state buying. So look at Oklahoma and, and, and Kansas. They cut taxes hugely. And they were told, oh, we're going to boom. They didn't boom. They have huge deficits. 
They had to cut education. They had to cut health care. They are so in so much trouble. Okay, we didn't cut taxes that much, but we never grew. Okay, our growth is when outsiders demand our stuff. When we cut our own taxes, we demand stuff that's ninety nine percent made by somebody else. So the argument that we're going to grow is either straight up untruth, or they simply don't understand how it works. You know, either they don't understand it or they're just you know fibbing to the public. But it works at the national level during a recession, but not. They, let me ask you a question here. We've discussed the financial impact of uh, income inequality, but there's another impact on society as a whole when you have vast areas of, of well, let's say vast areas of poverty. And that's mm-hmm. and that actually affects the health of a society, does it not? Sure, because you have large swaths of southeast Arkansas that are very poor, and you have nobody moving in. Uh, you have very little investment by the state in there. And so you have a lot of um, obesity uh, because you don't have that much income. And so fast food and processed food is cheaper than whole, and then foods you got to cook your, per se. And so you end up with people being obese. You don't have that much health care facilities, so health is down. You, know, you have poverty leads to other social issues, depression, child abuse, spousal fighting, marital breakups. You know, society tends to start breaking down when you have extreme poverty and no way out of it. And, that, and, that, and that's the thing here. That's where government Northwest could Arkansas. be the solution. Could it? Sure. We don't have any program in Arkansas to develop the southern part of the state. Parts of the state that develop are the parts that develop. The northwest Arkansas is doing well. The central part is doing well. Around Jonesboro, it's okay. But most of eastern Arkansas, outside of uh, Jonesboro area, maybe West Memphis a little bit, isn't doing all that great. Based on income alone, 55% of eastern Arkansas qualifies for food stamps. That's telling you that eastern Arkansas is, is poor. What is the national it, level for food stamps? I think it's 20% maybe or something. I really don't know. It's nowhere near, nowhere near that. Um, in Jonesboro, which is the richest city in eastern Arkansas, uh, 25% of, of our city uh, is making, uh, I think, $24,000. They're in the bottom 20%. I do know that 80% of Jonesboro salary is less than the state average. So although with Jonesboro's wealthy relative to all of eastern Arkansas, compared to the state average, it's not quite the state average. It's well below the national average. But it's, it's not as wealthy as it looks. But when Jonesboro gets new industry and it grows, what happens? People, when they need more people, it, it surrounds from other communities who come here. Okay, other communities have a hard time competing with Jonesboro for factories, and so whatever whatever factories they have leave or don't open up. And so when you drive to some of these rural communities, there's very little left there anymore. The local hospitals closed down, factories are shut down. Um, West Helena used to be very prosperous. Over the years, entire factories have moved, other factories have moved, and now it's desperately poor, and nothing has replaced it. The state needs a regional development policy, but they don't have one. Have you ever driven through Kentucky? Not through Kentucky, I haven't. It's been okay. a long time. Kentucky has a, had a lot of toll roads. There was the Purchase Parkway, there was the Western Kentucky Parkway, the Bluegrass Parkway, 
there was all these basically interstate type roads that they had built and they were toll roads and that's how they were paying for them and so you could go all over Kentucky north, south, east and west on these roads Okay, and then when they were paid off then they got rid of the tolls and now they're trying to get them to be incorporated in an interstate system Arkansas has nothing like that where we're trying to develop southern Arkansas Okay, we have no highway project we're going to build four lane of highways into southeast Arkansas so that industries will find it cheap to uh, transport products out and produce. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just not doing anything there. You can carry your handgun down there. <laughs> well, you can carry your gun anywhere these days in Arkansas, I understand. Uh, when, I, when I first moved here, uh, they had the blue laws in Jones where you couldn't buy anything except limited things. We went to the store, got some food things, and we came out, there was a guy next to us, had a gun, a gun in the back of his truck in the window. I told my wife, man's got a gun. She says, yeah, I saw that. And so as we pulled out, uh, the policeman came right behind us, and then he got in between us. And I told him, watch, the policeman's going to see the man with the gun in his truck. This will be interesting. The man turned left, the policeman turned right, and that was nothing. So I got to work, and I told my friend, there's a guy here in town. He's got a gun in the back of his truck. You can see it. The policeman didn't stop him. He goes, Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. As long as it's visible, it's legal. Where did you grow up? <laughs> Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. I'm just, that's been standard in the South well before the 70s. You know, that's throughout incredible. my life, open, exposed guns were totally legal in most all, to my knowledge, all states across the South. Yeah, yeah. That's what my friends told me. Yeah. So I went home and told my wife, honey, uh, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> <laughs> We're not in Kansas. This is, this is different down here. And they say, oh, yeah. Now, hiding it would be illegal. But you have it out in the gun rack, that's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. It was like, wow, that was like such an eye-opener to me. It's like, really? And then we were fixing a table. There was a table that was loose. Uh, and, I, and as the screw was loose, I said, man, if I had a screwdriver or maybe a knife, would you just tighten that? And I, anybody here have a knife? It was sarcasm. Sarcasm. <laughs> all four guys brought out knives. It's like, you guys got knives? It's like, all Southern boys have knives. Like, really? Yeah. And I was thinking, you guys are all college professors. You got knives on you? Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> it took a while to get there's to 40, there's 40 million people in the world enslaved still today. Was that a comment? Yeah, I, I've, yeah this comment, just think about society and tolerances and expectations that, you know, we walk around very blind to the tolerances or expectations of our global community and the variety of people. That's true. And we are so discourteous for such little differences in our own communities. Yeah. Now, one thing that was really surprised here in Jonesboro, for years we had, when I just came here, we had what was called the Saudi Arabian Customs Project. We were training all the Saudi Arabian customs officials. And uh, mm-hmm. then they, uh, their, their leader came and saw that all the students were in dorms. He goes, this is crazy. He says, you guys are customs officials. You've got to work with foreigners all the time. You can't be in a dorm by yourself. All of you have to leave the dorm, go rent an apartment in town, and live on the economy and meet, basically, foreigners. Live with the foreigners, you know, interact with them. And we thought to ourselves, oh, my God, all these foreign students are going to be in town here. And then they build a mosque. 
we thought, oh, how will this go over? Surprisingly, it was the biggest non-event in Jones Gross history. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and it was like, it was like a, who cares? Oh, you know the moth, how interesting. That was the end of it. No one said boo about it, no one thought a thing about it. I remember everybody in the, in the college thinking, wow, this is great. We feel proud about ourselves. But there was a lot of fear at first that people would, you know, there'd be some bad reactions, but there weren't. It was very, very pleasant, very tolerant, very refreshing. We all thought, oh, look at this. We, we feared needlessly. We thought our, our public would be intolerant, but they were very tolerant. Uh, and it was, it was nice. It was very nice. Well, Dr. Latanich, I really appreciate you coming on here and speaking with us today. This has been well, a, a minute eye-opener. Well, thank you very much. I enjoy talking about economics. It's just, I still write in the newspaper because I love it. It's just a fun subject that, that I want people to understand that if it's done right, economics applied can make people's lives much better. So you really helped me in my mission to disseminate education about economics, and I thank you for having me on. It was a, it was a privilege. I enjoyed it. You made my day. Well, thank you. Okay, well, that was the show. Make sure you come to the website. We're starting last week. We're publishing essays from Dr. Latanich, which he writes for the Jonesboro Sun newspaper about twice a month. And once again, if you have a topic of discussion that we should air, or an idea for a guest, or even you think you'd be a good guest yourself, send me an email. You can send it at scott at straighttalkarkansas.com, or you can comment on the website, or if you found us through Facebook, comment on the post that you saw this on. There's a lot of education that our fellow Arkansans need in order to go to the polls and vote for someone who's going to have their best interest at heart. That's my mission with this podcast, and I hope that you will share it with all your friends. And let's have the discussions these bring. We have a lot of work to do in these next months, so find some way to get involved and bring a friend. Every time I hear the people cry, don't you know that the man is gonna lie? I try to tell them that they have a choice. Society, or you all be.